0: We've been studying Matthew, um, and here we are today in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Thanks, Nathan. Well, good morning, Christ Community. Uh, my name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. So, so as Nathan read, um, we come to this if you, i mean if you 've been in church you you are probably familiar with the greatest commandment, but it's such it 's such an extreme statement i mean think of the greatest commandment this is a significant thing for jesus to claim and i and I thought it would be interesting just for us to kind of hypothetically explore this. Like if you had the authority to determine the greatest commandments for all people at all times, at all places, like what would it be? Like what would you de- declare to be ruled and be the rule for every person? And, and I'm not talking about like what what you think ought to be the actual command. Like what do you actually think? Like if I chose it, the way in which you live your life, what would be the rule you would set for everyone? And, and I think this is an interesting question to ask because I think our answer reveals a few things about us. I think it does reveal what we think is wrong with the world, and it also reveals what we think that the remedy to that problem is, and also reveals kind of what we value in life. And so I think it's just at least worth exploring, like what would it be? Is it just kind of a do no harm, you know? Is it, is it love your enemies? Is it mind your own business? Is it ban all country music? I don't know, whatever it is for you, uh, what, what would be that commandment? And I think it's worth asking, because it does reveal much about who we are and what we believe to be true in the world. And, and, and if we're honest with, with Jesus, when we, when he gives this commandment, the greatest commandment, there are these two parts to it. And, and if we're honest, I mean, the, the second part we're kind of on board with. Loving your neighbor, that's good. You know, I think we can get on board with that. It's this first part of loving God supremely above all things where there's probably some pushback. E- even for those of us who would identify as, as being Christian, there's something strange about God demanding that we love him supremely with all of our affections over and above everything else. It, it seems odd that there, you see this demand and love in the same sentence, like, like demanding love never goes well in most relationships, why is God demanding it and why is it okay for him to do so and not us? And so I think it's worth asking because this, this issue of God demanding love and, and utmost allegiance to himself is actually a barrier to entry for many people. In fact, some of you may, may be kind of at a place of you're just not fully bought into this whole Christian thing because of this very picture. In fact, the story of of Oprah Winfrey, there was an interview she had where uh, she revealed that the main reason she kind of left uh, Orthodox Christianity was because of this idea that God is a jealous God, and that he demands our affections and allegiance. That seems egotistical. That seems like he's just kind of greedy for attention, and so that doesn't bode well with us, and so we kind of push that away. And so the question is, how do we deal with this tension of God demanding that we love him? Because that doesn't seem very loving. It seems like it's the act of this egotistical, kind of childish, capricious deity, and not one of a loving, compassionate God. And what I hope that we'll see this morning as we kind of jump into our text of Matthew 22 is that, that God's command that he be loved above all things is not only a very good and loving act in itself, but it is something that prepares and equips us to love other people well. Or, or to put it another way, I think what Jesus is saying in teaching the greatest commandment is, is this, that the best way to love others is to love God most. That the best way to love others is to love God most. And, and that may seem counterintuitive, uh, and it seems like it doesn't make sense in our minds, but, but I want us to see that I think that as Jesus is unpacking the greatest commandment, this is precisely what he's getting at. And I know it seems strange and it may seem backwards, but, but it's an important thing for us to consider uh, as we jump into the text. But before we do that, let me pray for our time uh, as we hear from God and his word. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause to give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and reveals and, and shows yourself. Uh, Lord, I ask that your spirit would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our hearts to receive your truth Lord, may we be formed and shaped by this very challenging and and in some ways familiar teaching, uh, and may it transform the way in which we, we see you and see others and live in your world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So Matthew 22, just to kind of set context for us, uh, this is still Jesus' last week on earth. Uh, The tensions and divisions between Jesus and the religious leaders are increasing both in intensity and frequency. And so what we've seen up until this point is the Sadducees have been trying to trap Jesus with these questions. And they're trying to trap him to where they can get people to see Jesus either as a false teacher or either as, as kind of siding with them, like they want him to be kind of on their side, or to try to show him to be this kind of insurrectionist against the Roman Empire. They're trying to trap him with these questions. And time and time again, Jesus' response, it astonishes them. In fact, the scriptures say that, that the Sadducees were silenced because of Jesus' response. And so the Pharisees kind of tap in. They're like, all right, let's, let's take our swing at it and see if we can trap Jesus. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him this question about, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And so we have to understand that the question they're asking is not one out of sincerity. They're not like, Jesus, what is this? I'm really curious. You know, they're, they're trying to trap him. And so they're asking this question kind of out of a place of, it's kind of like the question of like, who's your favorite child or who's your favorite parent? Like, that's not a fair question. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They're trying to get Jesus to categorize the Old Testament law and to prioritize certain things, which in their mind is impossible. And so Jesus responds in a way that not only avoids the trap, but his answer reveals something profound about our loves, about ourselves, about God and our neighbors, And what Jesus says first in his response is essentially this, that we are to love God supremely. We are to love God supremely. And Jesus, his answer comes from an Old Testament passage in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter six, verses four through five, uh, known as the Shema. The Shema was this kind of traditional creed that that the people of Israel would recite, sometimes sing, uh, at least twice a day. And it's called the Shema because the the first word in it, uh, here, it's the Hebrew word Shema, so that's where it comes from. And in it, we hear these words, no pun intended. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now this creed that was so central to the, to the people of Israel, it wasn't just a truth that they held to, it wasn't just something that they believed with great conviction, but it was a central truth that not only defined who they were as, as, as Jews, but it, it formed and defined who they were as humans. That, that really what it means to be human, that at the core of our being, we are created to be loving people and that we were created to love God supremely over and above all things. This is what it means to be human. And and the why behind this command to love God above all things is, is rooted in the fact that God is the supreme God and the exclusive God, that he is supremely above all things, and he is exclusively the only God out there. And because of this, he is to be loved supremely and exclusively. But we also see in the Shema that there's this relational aspect to it. That not only is God over and above all things, but that he is for his people. And that there is this aspect of commitment and promise and covenant. And that this is central to the Shema, which is what Jesus is referring to. And so the the reason why Jesus kind of gives this as the greatest commandment is because what he's saying is that if God is God, then then he must be the greatest good in the world. If if he is truly God, supreme over all things, he must be the greatest good. And therefore, to, to deny, to reject, to fail to love and pursue the greatest good would mean that we, by consequence, are people who are not good. If there is a supreme goodness out there, to reject it and to pursue something else would lead us to be people who are not good. It would be like like denying that Usain Bolt is the fastest person in the world. It would be like denying that Joe's KC Barbecue is the greatest barbecue in the world. That's a a truth written into the fabric of our being. But but in all seriousness, to deny this, it's it's not only you're just rejecting it because it's a preference, you're rejecting a truth that is actually keeping you from, from understanding how life is to be lived. To reject God, who is the supreme, not only source of goodness, but the essence of goodness means that we are choosing to pursue something less than what is supremely good, and we find ourselves by, co- by consequence not good. This is why the Shema is so vital to God's people, and this is why Jesus doubles down in declaring that the greatest commandment is to love God supremely. And we don't, we don't like this kind of inherently because there's, there's something in us that kind of says, you know, I, I don't like being told what to love. I don't like being told what to do. I have the right and authority to choose what is right, good, beautiful, lovely, et cetera. I don't really like this idea of kind of adhering to a standard of morality, of goodness, and truth. We're, we're, we're very individualistic as a people. And we like the idea of choosing what is right for ourselves. That may be right for you, but this is what's right for me. That, that may be truth for you, but this is what's truth for me. And and while there's something that seems kind of admirable about that, it's actually very hollow and sad and empty That, that our basis of truth and goodness and morality is truly just based on our own subjective experiences and convictions, places us at the center of the universe where we shouldn't be. And we come up with these conclusions about life based on our own convictions that really aren't rooted in anything of substance unless we are appealing to a greater standard of goodness and truth. This is what uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor, he refers to as the extraordinary inarticulacy of modern culture. That's just a fun one to say to your friends. Oh, you're just spouting off extraordinary inarticulacy of modern culture. But, But in describing what he means by this, Taylor says this, he says, moral positions are not in any way grounded in reason or the nature of things, but are ultimately just adopted by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. And this is kind of how we operate. We kind of choose what we are drawn to, what is true, right, and beautiful. But this is actually contrary to what I believe Jesus is declaring as the greatest commandment, that if there is goodness in the world, which we all recognize, there's also gradations and degrees of goodness. We recognize that some things are gooder than others. You know? We recognize that we know that some things are more right than others, more true than others. And by saying that, we're implying that there's some standard, some third objective point that we're comparing these things to. We all know that goodness can't just be a subjective experience that we create. It must be rooted in something objective, And to reject this kind of goodness, this supreme goodness, makes us by consequence people who are not good. And this is exactly why God demands our love. You see, it may look at face value that God is saying, I I just need attention, you need to love me. But what God is doing when he demands our love, he is actually loving us as he does it. Why? Because God, knowing that he is the greatest good, Knowing that he is the supreme source and essence of goodness, for him to promote anything less than himself, for us to pursue would actually be evil. He would be keeping us from the greatest good in the world, namely himself. And so God's pursuit and passion of his own glory to be worshiped and loved and adored by all, above all things, it's actually an act of love to us because he is trying to give us the greatest good in all of the world, namely himself. So therefore, for God to command that we love anything less than him would actually keep us from the greatest good and actually make him evil. Let me illustrate it this way. If you imagine you own a grocery store, independently owned grocery store in a city where there are a bunch of chain grocery stores, okay? And you find out that all these chain grocery stores are getting their produce from a food distribution company. And there are certain produce items that have been tainted and, and people are getting sick and dying. But these grocery stores aren't telling people about the produce, And so you decide to have this huge citywide campaign promoting your store. Don't go to these stores, come to my store. I have the good produce. If you go here, you will die. Come to my store where I have good produce. People may look at it and say, you're just promoting yourself. You're just promoting your store. And yes, while that's true, the act of doing so is an act of love because you know that you have the best produce. And to go anywhere else inferior to that would lead to sickness and death. In the same way, God, knowing that he is supremely good, to pursue and to promote anything less than himself would make him evil. So let's say you're on board with that. Like, okay, fine. Philosophically, I kind of get that. God's the supreme good. We should pursue him. Anything less would be evil. Okay, I got it. But, but what does that look like? What, what does it mean to love God? How, how is this kind of fleshed out? What is this picture that we have and what does Jesus have in mind? And so this is where the Shema again is helpful. In the Shema, we see that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus also adds the mind. And, and, what, and we need to be careful. We don't need to see these as distinct categories of our personhood, but rather what the Hebrew teaching here is saying is that to say the heart, soul, mind, strength, it is a totality of our being. That our entire person, everything about us is to love God. It's not just pockets of us. It's not to be expressed in compartments. It is a whole person love that we are to love God with every fiber of our being, with our wills, with our affections, with our mind, with our, with our aspirations, with our resources. Everything about us is to be expressed in love towards God. And and it's not not just like one love among many. It's not like God's love is great and there's these other loves, but this love, this whole person love of God is is a love that forms and shapes and informs every other love. That that to love God supremely is actually what influences and bleeds into our other loves. it's It's not compartmentalized love, but it is, so to speak, one love to rule them all, if you will. And that's the picture that Jesus has in giving the greatest commandment. And this is why Jesus in his teaching on the greatest commandment, he ties our love for God to our love for neighbor. That that to love God wholly bleeds into and naturally flows into our love for our neighbor, which is why Jesus so closely connects these two. It's essentially these two commands are our twins never intended to be separated. And so by loving God supremely, it leads us, equips us, and prepares us to love others sacrificially. To love your neighbor as yourself is the picture that Jesus says of what this second commandment that is similar, that flows from, it's connected to this great commandment. Jesus says to love our neighbor, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and what Jesus is doing here with this kind of two, by one commandment, get the second one free kind of picture, what he's doing is he's taking the Shema, the central teaching of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, and he's amending it with the teaching in Leviticus 19. Which is where the, the love your neighbor as yourself comes from, which is kind of interesting. Like, some of us may not, didn't know that. Like, the most common, probably most popular command in the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself, it comes from the least read book in the Bible, Leviticus. It's just interesting. But, but Jesus takes these two great teachings, love God above all things, love your neighbor as yourself, and he fuses them together to see that they are meant to be taught in, together. And, and what he's doing, he's saying at least two things by putting these two commandments together. The first thing he's saying is that in order to love our neighbors sacrificially, we must first love God supremely. If we want to be people who love our neighbor sacrificially, which I think we're all on board with that to some degree, we must love God supremely. But the second thing he's saying with this is that if we love God supremely, we will find ourselves naturally loving God, uh, loving our neighbors sacrificially. That in order to love our neighbor sacrificially, we must love God supremely. And if we love God supremely, we will find ourselves loving our neighbors sacrificially. Now, we've seen a little bit of what it means to love God. It's this whole person love, a love that forms and shapes and informs all other loves. But what does Jesus have in mind when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? We may have pictures in our mind of what this looks like, but what does Jesus have in mind? And to put it simply, to love your neighbor as yourself means that we are able, ready, and willing to expend the same amount of energy, creativity, time, and resources seeking the good of others as we do for ourselves. It's the posture of being able, ready, and willing to expend the same amount of energy and resources and time promoting the good of others as we are able and willing to do for ourselves. That this is the fundamental posture of one who loves their neighbor as themselves. One who is willing to endure cost and sacrifice inconvenience, so that others might flourish. Now, this sounds great. I mean, I think we kind of have a nice picture, but it seems like, well, that's a little bit of a bigger ask than maybe I thought. I, I just thought it was going to be like making pies and sending them to people. This is a bigger picture than what I had in mind of loving our neighbor. And so, so what does Jesus specifically have in mind, though? We, we know the posture, it's about being willing to give for the sake of others, just as we would for ourselves. But what does Jesus have in mind? And what's interesting is when you turn to Leviticus 19, the, the whole discourse on loving your neighbor as yourself, what you'll find is that the majority of the language there is actually dealing with, with matters of, of workplace relationships and, and job creation and, and matters of justice. In fact, of of the first, uh, in this discourse in Leviticus 19, the first thing that is said about loving your neighbor is what is referred to as the gleaning principle. Leviticus 19, we read these words. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner i am the lord your god now this is not the only way we love our neighbor but i think it's very interesting that of the first uh, the first command in this discourse on loving our neighbor what do we see love neighborly love looks like it is about providing meaningful adequate sufficient work for people in need particularly for marginalized people it's not just giving a handout. As you notice, it says, don't, don't, don't uh, harvest everything from your field. Don't, don't do it all, but leave some so that others might be able to harvest for themselves and provide for themselves. Now, we don't live in an agrarian society, so that doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but the principle is still true that are we people that are loving our neighbors in a way that is helping them find meaningful, adequate work? And, and, and this is the picture we don't n- n- naturally look at or consider when we think of neighborly love, what this principle of neighborly love is showing us is this, is that there is an obligation on all of us, but, but even in particular for those who have uh, kind of productive assets, you know, access to productive assets to work in such a way that we are helping people in need find work, find meaningful employment, This is one of the pictures that Jesus has in mind of loving our neighbor. It's so much more than just taking a meal. It's so much more than than watching your neighbor's kids, although that's true and absolutely good. But there is a bigger picture here that Jesus has in mind. Referring to this very text, Leviticus 19, there's a commentator who, who puts this very brilliantly. He says this, We love ourselves when we make work choices that bring us high pay, prestige, security, comfort, and easy work. We love others when we choose work, and I would also add support companies and businesses that provide needed goods and services, opportunities for marginalized people, protection for God's creation, justice and democracy, truth, peace, and beauty. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbors yourself, suggests that the latter should be as important to us as the former. That this is the picture of neighborly love that Jesus, I mean, he was fully aware of Leviticus 19, Jesus knew what he was saying when he added this to the great Shema. The picture we have is of loving our neighbors in a way that is not just providing immediate needs, but how are we helping them create opportunities for them to meet their own needs? And, and if, you're, if you're interested, if you'd like to learn more about this, this is kind of beyond the scope of this sermon, but we did a whole sermon series on this very concept uh, called Neighborly Love uh, back in the fall of 2015. And if you'd like to learn more about kind of the connection of faith work and economics, uh, I encourage you to go to our website, listen to those sermons, fall of 2015, Neighborly Love, check it out. Great, great content we encourage you to, to, to listen to. But, but one thing, let me say this, is that Neighborly Love is not only, you know, secluded to the marketplace or, or, or business people. I mean, that, that's not the only thing that Leviticus 19 is about. But, but there's something that we should consider. I mean, if you're a student, let's say, perhaps your gleaning principle is, is you're willing and able, like you're brilliant at geometry. And so perhaps your gleaning principle is using your excessive knowledge that you have of geometry and tutoring someone who's in need. Tutoring a kid who doesn't get the, the kind of attention in class or maybe they have trouble paying attention or whatever it may be perhaps that is your gleaning principle. Perhaps your way of loving your neighbor and allowing them to provide for themselves is tutoring them in class. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home parent, mom, dad, whatever, I would encourage you, that like, perhaps your gleaning principle is, how can I create a community of stay-at-home parents in our neighborhood who are all stressed out and overwhelmed with things? How can we... Uh, Create a source of encouragement, community resources. How can we help better each other in our roles as parents? It can look like a lot of different things, but one thing I would encourage you to do is this week, go go back and read through Leviticus 19. I know that sounds really weird, like that's our our application is read Leviticus, but yes, go back, read through Leviticus 19 and ask yourself, how do these principles speak to and apply to and relate to my sphere of influence wherever it may be? And what we'll see, it's not just matters of of economics and job creation, but we see things like caring for the poor and the disabled. We see things like working with integrity and honesty. We see things like standing up for those who have been violated through unjust systems. That this is the picture of neighborly love that God has in mind. And so we should ask the question, are we working? Are we studying? Are, are Are we purchasing in ways that are helping our neighbors find meaningful, adequate work? Or are we doing things that are working against the grain? So this is one of the pictures that we see Jesus has of neighborly love. Now, if you remember, I made the pretty bold claim that, that in order to love people well, we must love God most. And, and maybe that's still sitting with you like, I, you know, okay, I, I see what it means to love God. Yeah, that makes sense. I see neighborly love and the picture's okay, great. But But why these two together? I mean, how is it that my love for this unseen deity, which is... Complicated and difficult and challenging for sure. How does my love for this God bleed into influence directly my love for my neighbor that I see and hear and, and touch and smell maybe? Um, you know, how do we understand those connections? And, and, and the, way, the thing I want us to see is that when we love God supremely, when he is loved first, it allows us to love everything else in its right order. Or in other words, when we love God supremely, it leads us to love our neighbor sacrificially, which allows us to love both seamlessly. It allows us to love both seamlessly, which I think is what Jesus is doing as he connects these two commandments together. Notice how Jesus weaves them together in his teaching in, in verse 37. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. So when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no hiccup. There's no disconnect. There's no dividing wall or partition between these commandments. Jesus, in the same breath, love God above all things, love him supremely, and love your neighbor sacrificially. Love him or her as yourself. These two feed off of one another in some way. And, And not only do they feed off of one another, but Jesus says that the entirety of the Old Testament And the prophets, they hang on us. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, this is the first example of like notes, essentially, like the entire Bible. Love God, love your neighbor. And the word that Jesus uses, it says they depend. It depends on this. It literally means to hang or to hinge, which means that all all of the law, all of the rules in the Old Testament, they hinge, they move properly when these two are pursued properly. Jesus hangs all of the law and the prophets on these commandments. Why? Because Jesus knows that deep down, you and I, we are not fundamentally what we believe or even what we do. We are fundamentally what we love. That that deep down, that the most the most driving influencer in our lives is not what we believe, not what we do, it is what we love. We aren't human beings, we aren't human doings, we're human lovings. That's, that's, it's corny, but it's true. And that's the picture. And because Jesus knows this, this is why he puts loving God supremely above all is the greatest commandment. Uh, James K.A. Smith, he has a phenomenal little book called uh, You Are What You Love. And in it, he makes this point. He says that Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind, He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. And deep down, we all know this. We know that our loves are what carry us and influence us, that it's our loves that that form the decisions we make. There's a song, Awake My Soul by Mumford and Sons, and in it, they they say that where you invest your love, you invest your life. We, We know this to be true, which is why, again, Jesus is doubling down and saying the greatest commandment. It's not just love God, but it's to love the supreme essence and source of goodness so that everything underneath him might be loved properly. Because it is our loves that serve as the greatest driving force within us, it's also our loves that cause the greatest problems in our world. Because if if we are fundamentally what we love, the problems in our world are not rooted in what we, in the fact that we believe wrong things or even that we do wrong things, it's that we love the wrong things. And and not only bad things, but that we just love things in an an incorrect order. We have loved things out of order and that's what causes the problems in our life. And until we learn how to love everything in the proper way, in the proper order, we won't be able to love things in the proper way. We have to love things in the right order, otherwise things fall apart. Let me illustrate it this way. C.S. Lewis has this great line uh, where he talks about, it's it's in an essay uh, where it's basically called the, The First Things Principle. And Lewis says this, the woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Jesus knows this. When we take a lesser thing, a third-place category, fourth-place category thing, and love it supremely, not only do we miss out on the joy because we're expecting so much from this thing, but we're missing out on the joy that comes from loving the supreme good above all things. Or another way to think about it is one of the best ways that I can love my children is to love my wife more than them. I mean, I mean marriage and family therapists point this out time and time again, that if I choose to love my children more than my wife, there's gonna be tension and division between Megan and I. And I actually am now expecting more from my children than what I should. And that's an unhealthy relationship. And we all know this, why? Because there's an order to love. You see, if, if my marriage is failing, there is a diminished joy in my life even if all of my other relationships are flourishing. And conversely, when my marriage is flourishing and all these other relationships are failing, there is a different kind of joy. Why? Because my marriage to Megan is a significant relationship and we must learn the order of loves. And if we fail to, we will not only find ourselves failing to follow the greatest commandment, we will miss out on the joys that come in ordering our loves. Now, how do we do this? What does this look like? How do we even begin to reorder our loves and put things in the right place? How do we see loving God supremely is what leads into loving our neighbors as ourselves? Well, let me just offer a few questions just for us to consider and reflect on. The first is this, what are our lives telling us about what we love? What are our lives telling us about what we love? Because our lives reflect what we love. And and if you want to know where your allegiances lie, where, where your priorities are, look at what you love Look at, how, look at how you prioritize the various relationships in your life. What is your life telling you about what you love? Secondly, if God is not our supreme love, if, if we reject that premise, that's fine. But the question is, then what will be your supreme love? What will be the thing you love above all things? And will it be enough to form and shape and influence all of your other loves? to pursue anything less than the supreme good will not only lead us from missing out on the supreme good, but it will misorder our loves. And then thirdly, are we showing love in obvious ways? Are we showing love in obvious ways? We we express love in in many ways. Just think of your hobbies. think Think of your significant other. Think of your children, your family members. I mean, we express love with our time, with our words, both privately and publicly. We, we, we express love through our creativity and energy, through our resources. We express love in many ways. And so the question is, I mean, do you, do you see yourself expressing love in obvious ways to God and to your neighbor? Do you, do you find yourself sacrificing and giving up something for the sake of someone else? And do you see that flowing from your supreme love for God? Are we showing love in obvious ways? Now, now those may be some helpful questions to kind of diagnose our hearts and kind of where we are, but but there's still probably this kind of sense of like, but that doesn't really get to the point of how we do this. How on earth do we get to the place of loving God supremely so that we might love others sacrificially? And what I would say is this, is that the greatest commandment is only possible through the greatest invitation from the greatest person who paid the greatest price. That if we want to be people who love God wholly, it means that we must be whole people. And we all struggle with that. We all feel like we're not complete. We all feel this division within ourselves and competing allegiances. If we want to love God supremely that we might love others sacrificially, we need to be whole people. And how do we become whole people? It's by being yoked to the one who personified wholeness perfectly. The greatest commandment is only possible through the greatest invitation from Jesus, who calls us to enter into his yoke, to be connected with him, to journey with him in all of life, for him to be the voice we listen to the most, the face we look at the most, who, whose words are the ones that, that stay within us the most. The greatest commandment is only possible through the greatest invitation. And, and, and the place in the yoke is where we are yoked to Christ, the one who who beautifully, perfectly personified love of God above all things and love of neighbor as himself. And we see that at the cross, Jesus going to the cross, motivated by his love for the Father above all things. I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, Jesus says. And what does he do at the cross? He goes there that he might bring all of us back to the Father through faith in his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Jesus is the person who loved God supremely and loved neighbors sacrificially. If we want to find a life that emulates those and loves both seamlessly, it means being yoked to the one who did it perfectly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we come to you asking that you would reveal to us where where we have pledged our allegiance and, and given our loves to lesser things. Lord, show us where we have, have pursued uh, our joy and our contentment, our identity and things beneath you. And Lord, help us to see that, that in your pursuit of your glory and your desire to be loved supremely above all things, that you are loving us as you do that. And Lord, show us how, how our love towards you above all things, forms and shapes all of our loves. Lord, would you convict us to be people who love you above all things, that we might love our neighbors sacrificially, enduring costs, caring for the marginalized, caring for those who are on the outskirts of our culture and society. May we be people who love sacrificially because of your great love towards us. We pray this in Christ's name and his glory. Amen.